0: Welcome to Season 2 of Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees uncover the heart and soul of what it means to be both Asian-American and adopted through the sharing of adoptee stories. I'm Shanae. And I'm Benny. And this week, we are joined by fellow adoptees Lauren Edwards and Anna Ostro. Welcome, you guys. It's great to have you here. You're two original Denverites, I think more original than Benny and myself, so it's nice that we can all connect. And it turns out that just by happenstance, you guys are also friends in real life which is really cool. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So we're deviating a little bit this week. You guys are not Korean adoptees. You are both adopted from China. But do you care to maybe, Lauren, we can start with you to share a little bit about yourself, what you're doing now, a little bit about your origin story? Yeah, so um, I am
1: 24, turning 25 this year, halfway there to 50, big year. But. congrats. congrats. <laughs> I was adopted from Kunming, China when I was 11 months. Um, so I grew up in Colorado and that's what I consider to be my home currently. So I went to um, Indiana University in Bloomington where I studied psychology, law and public policy and counseling. And I considered going the clinical PhD route um, and had a good opportunity to work with PhDs who specialize in exposure therapy. So I was able to implement that with some clients, which was really eye opening um, and really cool to see that evidence based practice in the works um, and to actually work with therapists. But since then, especially with the pandemic, just lots of thinking about where I want to be in life, what makes me happy, whether I'm trying to convince myself that I should do something or can do something versus whether I actually like it. So from that experience, I grew a lot, but I also learned that I definitely um, prefer the more hands-on social work stuff rather than doing research. So um, since then, I have moved all the way across the country to Seattle, where I am a family care coordinator working with wraparound intensive services, which we call WISE. It's statewide. So it was actually really cool. Today, we had a statewide event where um, they actually played a song that I recorded. My team for training, we changed the lyrics to the song, Part of Your World, from The Little Mermaid. Because my party trick is that I do Disney singing impersonations. So that was really fun to hear. And we, we made it about one of the 10 uh, principles. So we made it about strengths. So that was really awesome. And yeah, I think as a family care coordinator, I'm really excited to see how we can collaborate with community members for our clients and really help them become stable and active in their community. And then this year, I will be applying to, similar to Anna, Master's of Public Health programs, but also a dual degree in Master's of Social Work. Very cool. Yeah, so you
2: basically, you have nothing going on right now. You have yeah, a lot I know. of
1: free time. <laughs> Honestly, I do at this point. I have to brace myself for what's to come.
2: Thank you for sharing. I I do have a quick sidebar. Okay, so what what is your top three Disney songs? If you had to rank them,
1: okay. Um, I often one of the go tos that I sing is "For the First Time in Forever," where I do Anna and Elsa. Definitely gets me bonding with the kiddos, and then the song "Tangled." I see the light one's really fun this is like a little bit different but kind of the same as singing reflection from Mulan but doing the Christina Aguilera impersonation yeah <laughs> get a little fancy with it
2: yes I'm surprised you didn't go with um like under the sea little mermaid lion king just can't wait to be I might be dating myself though those those are a little <laughs> bit older yeah those are solid picks though. <laughs> Um, And then Anna, do you want to share a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to our listeners?
3: Yeah, sure. So I am Anna, as you may know. I was adopted at 14 months from Zhangjiang in Guangdong province in China. Grew up here in Denver. I was raised Jewish with two mothers, so that is definitely an interesting twist on my background and upbringing. As Lauren mentioned briefly, I am back in Denver now after having lived in D.C. for the past six years which is crazy to say, and I am studying for my master's of public health. So with any luck, that'll be done in the next couple of years. And then I will
2: move on to uh, jumping back into the work world. Very nice. And so I'm a a little bit outnumbered here. Not that I've been the only man on the show right now, but I'm also the only person that's not an only child. So you all, (laughs) all three of you have that, which I can't relate to.
0: Out of curiosity, have either of your parents vocalized or expressed why they chose to go the only children route? Um, No,
3: <laughs> not mine. Um, I actually <laughs> remember when I was little, I think I was like five or six, I I wrote my parents a letter asking for a sibling and I taped it to their bedroom door oh. and then I ran away and I hid under my covers in my bedroom um, and they read it like 20 minutes later and they just... They came downstairs and they explained to me that they only wanted one daughter, but then we got a dog. So that was fine. So then I grew up with dogs. <laughs> I
2: love it. It's kind of like when you send a risky text and you put your phone down and run away. You did it like the old school style. You started out with a letter and then just hid in your bedroom. That's classic.
0: <laughs> Benny, how many uh, risky texts do you send? It sounds like.
2: <laughs> one, one a year. I just send one a year. You know what I mean? Just to, <laughs> just to keep myself going. <laughs>
1: Similar to Anna in terms of, like, I did have a pet sibling, Fitzgerald, my golden retriever best pal. Um, so that was definitely really fun. I think, you know, the grass is always greener. I always kind of wanted a sibling. Also, I, like, tend to gravitate towards younger Friends, I don't know why I tend to like to take that mentorship role not on purpose, maybe it's just being in this helping profession. But I really love trying to give as much insight as I can to help people have their best experience for them. But I think you know, my mom, she was like born to be a mom. I feel like I was born to be a mom, and I think you know, my parents had talked about having kids, and the way in which it turned out was you know, the adoption process is lengthy (laughs) and very thoughtful, so once. You know we got they they got through all the paperwork um you know, and were able to have me. They were just really content
0: with how our family was. I remember always wanting very specifically an older brother, which obviously. By the time I got there, it was not in the cards because even if my parents had a biological child, he wouldn't be older. Um, but it was like, <laughs> I didn't want a sister. I didn't want a younger brother because I had friends with younger brothers and they would like destroy all their stuff and be super rambunctious. And I just had this image of like, I want this, you know, really nice, doting, protective older brother. Um, but <laughs> obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs>
1: Our childhood best friend that Anna and I both share, shout out to Katie. Um, so she has an older brother, and I always remembered that he was three years older. So when he was in high school and she was in high school, she was a freshman and he was a senior. And I'm like, that is a perfect age gap. And I'm like, when I become a parent, that's what I'm going to do because that's exactly <laughs> how life works. You can plan it out just like that. But
0: <laughs> So you two shared a childhood friend. And we've had several guests this season so far who have expressed that they've had friends growing up who are also adoptees. But everybody sort of shared this common thread that they didn't talk about the fact that they were adoptees with those other adoptee friends. Was that true for you two as well? Do you know if your parents communicated at all? Because you are the same age. Was there any kind of communication around adoption for you guys growing up?
1: For me, so we actually went through an agency called CCAI in Colorado, and it was a group trip where they went to China um, and then brought all the babies back on the plane. So we did have an adoption group. We had gotcha days together, but that was pretty short-lived because we were just a lot younger then and, you know, people go off into their own journey. So I do have one close friend um, named McKenna, and she and I are close. And her and I talked about adoption. Another thing that my parents were intentional about was having me go to like Chinese school to learn Chinese when I was young. It was less so to force me to learn a language and more so to put myself around other families that looked like ours to kind of normalize that, which I appreciated. But I think you know, when McKenna and I spoke, it was interesting because we did have different experiences. So she, you know, I feel like really wanted to immerse herself um, in the Asian culture. She had a lot of Asian friends where she was aware, like, oh, like I've learned, like, I'm definitely not supposed to wear my house in the shoes or shoes in the house, um, things like that. And she saw it as a, like, a blessing and was such a light. And I think for me, you know, I struggled a bit more with sitting with that feeling of, um, you know, the abandonment with adoption and things of that nature. So I don't think my parents ever fully brought up the concept of adoption. And we've actually been having more conversations about that as I've grown older for me to better understand what their thought process was throughout all of it and what their parenting has been like with me. But I do have one close friend and we do talk about it sometimes.
3: So actually, Lauren, I was also a CCAI baby. So I wonder what no group were. I'd have to ask my parents <laughs> which group it was. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think that I definitely speak for more than myself when I say that childhood was difficult. And kind of discovering your own adoptee identity uh, is hard, is not linear, first of all. Um, and second of all, it's just so exhausting to think about. So the ways in which my parents kind of introduced adoption to me as a child was definitely more through the whole, we want to keep you connected with your culture kind of thing. Um, So they enrolled me in language classes, which I absolutely did not want to be in. Um, I, I think I learned how to say purple in Mandarin. I don't remember it now, and that is all I know. And then I went home the next day and asked my mom to unenroll me from the classes because I was bored. So for me, at least with talking about adoption, it was always this automatic shutdown for me that I never really wanted to talk about it. I didn't want to unpack it. I didn't want anything to do with it. And these, these kind of, these cultural threads that were there through language classes or through, um, CCA, I had this annual picnic where all of the, adoptees and their families could get together and um there would be little cultural activities there would be a calligraphy tent there was lion dancing which always scared me as a kid but um there were all of these little things to try to keep the adoptees connected to their cultures and i just never wanted anything to do with it so aside from that i didn't really talk about adoption that much and it's been quite the journey now at almost you know 25 years old trying to figure out whether and how I can address this for myself, for other people, Um, just figuring it out as I go.
0: Speaking of culture, Anna, I know that you had said that you were raised Jewish, and I'm curious either how much you were immersed in Jewish spaces, and if you were frequently immersed in Jewish spaces, how you felt in those spaces. I had watched um, the Asian Jewish film project Lunar on YouTube a while ago. I don't know if you had seen it, but it was just really interesting to hear kind of the perspectives of different Asian Americans and, and being in the Jewish faith. Um, I'm curious what your experience was like. When my parents decided to adopt me, their, um,
3: their, their one rule, well, not rule, I guess, condition was that I should be raised Jewish. Um, And I, I, I love my Jewish identity Um, I, I think it's, it was a fantastic decision on my parents' part to raise me Jewish. We started at a reform synagogue and then slowly moved into our reconstructionist synagogue where there were a lot of interfaith families, which was nice because both of my parents are not Jewish. Only one of them is. So it was nice to have kind of that balance of interfaith people. Our synagogue was very welcoming and also very white. So although they were welcoming towards our family and all of that, I was historically the only Asian kid to, you know, ever walk into Sunday school or have a bat mitzvah in the like within those doors. And um, it, it was interesting. I mean, I think outside of our insular synagogue community, there were a lot of questions that I was faced with just in terms of, you know, I think the most offensive question that I got was like, "How can you be Jewish?" It was like this was something that just wasn't possible, um, and I I got a lot of questions, especially when I when I moved to college too. I mean, they they didn't really stop. It was just kind of like this this idea of somebody being Asian and Jewish was just like unheard of or something like that. And sometimes I felt like this weird science experiment. And I was like, "I'm just a person like you are, raised with the the same identity that you." Um, kind of echo and associate with and value. And um, so, yeah, it was definitely interesting being raised Jewish, but um, I also wouldn't trade it for anything.
2: You also put down in some notes that when you were a freshman in college, you completed a research project about Asian American adoptee identity inspired by the documentary Somewhere in Between. You said this is the first time you publicly addressed your identity and it terrified you but it was an important first step. I'd love to hear from Lauren too as well, but was your freshman year kind of the first time in your life where you started to, I shouldn't say accept, but more celebrate your identity and explore more of that part of your life?
3: Yeah, definitely. When I got to college, I thought that this was just a fabulous fresh start for me because all throughout middle school and high school, you know, I I was handed my, my sociocultural identity. You know, I, I had to explain to people how it was possible to have two moms, how it was possible to be Jewish, how it was possible to have an Asian face and not have an Asian, whatever they, w- they would term it, Asian accent. But, you know, whatever that meant, um, to, to sound like an American, how that was ever possible. Um, so when I got to college, I thought, cool, like nobody has to know about my familial situation. Nobody has to know about my religion until I choose to tell them. Um, and that part was really important for me because when I learned that I could kind of tell people what I wanted and omit what I did not want them to hear, it was definitely pivotal for me because I was able to feel more comfortable with myself instead of instead of somebody coming up to me and saying like, why don't you look like your two moms? Or, you know, just like, why is your skin tone a little darker? Um, I didn't have to answer to any of that, because my parents weren't there. And it was a great liberating feeling. So um, to go back to the research project, I was in this writing class, my freshman year of college. And it was specifically a class about Asian American experiences. So there were people, there were South Asians, East Asians, um, international students, Asian American students in that class. I mean, it was really um, quite a diverse roster of people on there. And it was great because everyone kind of picked their own research project at the end. Um, I don't remember what a lot of my classmates did, but I decided, well, why don't I talk about the struggles of Asian American identity? And then I remember that I saw that film somewhere between at the Boulder Film Festival a number of years ago. And it really stuck with me because there are a couple teenagers in that film um, and they're on completely different paths. Um, One of them kind of resonated with me because she kind of rejected her biological identity. I don't know about that part. Um, And then another one actually went on to find her birth parents she went back to her birth country and actually found her birth parents and biological siblings. So that was obviously a complete polar opposite from my experience, but I decided to base my research project off that film and I kind of threw it out there all at once. And I was like, this is a great way for me to get this off my shoulders in kind of a cathartic way. Um, And it was, and then, opening up that much actually really stressed me out. So I shut that box again for another five years. Um, and then here we are today, honestly, it is, it is very much touch and go with how much I, I want to open up and how, how much I share from day to day. Really.
2: I think all the listeners on this podcast can probably relate to the journey and how you talked about everything isn't linear. Um, and uh, sometimes we feel the energy or the capacity to revisit that. And other times we we um, maybe shallow for a little bit. And Lauren, I feel like you had a similar experience too as well, growing up in your neighborhood and where you are today in your journey.
1: Yeah, so I can't really recall many instances where kids would point out that I don't look like my parents. You know, I would get remarks about, you know, do you even have, I don't know. It's like irises, but I feel like a kindergartner wouldn't say that. But my eyes are so dark that they're like, oh, my gosh, are your eyes just pupils or your face is really flat? You know, love that kind of bullying. But I guess in terms of you previously touching on when was it that you began to celebrate your identity, I honestly don't think I'm there yet. Um, I, you know, I did make a post among the rise in Asian hate crimes on my Instagram about, how much of my life I've been able to kind of shield myself from pain due to inclusive environments that I've had and grown up in. You know, I live in a heteronormative family. I have my mom, I have my dad. They are Christian. I am Christian. I was baptized in the Methodist church. And I I personally, you know, one thing that makes me think I might be going on a tangent here, but when Anna says, you know, oh, I was different or you're different. You know, everyone loves to be different if it's with your, in your own agency to do so. But if someone is boxing you as other, you know, that's not a very good feeling. And, um, you know, I've noticed about myself is that I do not like to be categorized at all. I don't like to be categorized as, Asian, Christian, liberal woman, part of the LGBTQ plus community, because I think with what comes with that is people automatically associate that with their conception of what that means. And there's so much more complexity to who people are. So I much rather get to know people based on mere conversation before I dive into like certain parts of my identity. And that's not because I'm ashamed about any parts of that. But, um, you know, I don't want to close doors before you know, open the the big first one, I guess. But when I went to college, you know, I didn't, there weren't that many Asian kids um, in my high school. And there was a good chunk of Asian kids at college as well. But many of them were international students. And I had a few friends, but I think what a lot of people have kind of faced perhaps as adoptees, especially again, during, (laughs) during the rise of Asian hate crimes is where do I fit in? You know, And like Anna was saying earlier, running away from everything that's trying to immerse me in my culture. Is that my culture? Because I was taken from that. And I'm grateful to have the experience I have today, but that's not really where I fit in. So people would say, you're the most whitewashed Asian I've ever met. And I don't know if I'm supposed to take offense to that because yeah, you're probably right. My parents are both white and I've grown up in predominantly white spaces. And people haven't really pointed out that I'm different. Um, so, you know, statements like that make me feel more uncomfortable. And again, that was only one instance with someone um, who was an international student from Singapore. Or I sat down in the cafeteria. I went to Indiana University, really big school. This is how, you know, Lauren tries to make friends. She sits at a big dining hall table and says, like, hi, how are you? And she's like, well, what are you studying? And I'm like, oh, I'm studying my religion and psychology, um, you know text. It's for this class called Original Sin. And she's like, oh, only like white people study that. And I'm like, huh, okay. So, you know, I guess I just haven't really had a lot of exposure to meeting more adoptees, meeting more Asian Americans. And honestly, one thing I was really excited for moving to Seattle or the West Coast in general was that maybe I would just see more people that looked like me because, you know, I think one thing that I've struggled with is It's not only not seeing Asian people in general, but, um, you know, a lot of the times people talk about, oh, you look like your mom, you have your mom's eyes and your dad's nose. And I think that has been challenging for me because it would, I would be so grateful just to see anyone that remotely looks like me. (laughs) And I just haven't so far. And I guess that's really awesome that, you know, you're in the United States feeling like you're looking really unique, but um, it it does kind of feel lonely, especially in a time where um, you're kind of outcast.
2: I feel like I should have done more research before I asked this, so uh, doc me if you will, but do you feel like the Chinese adoptee community is prevalent in the United States or where you currently are, where you grew up, or do you feel like there's more to be desired in that space?
3: Well, I don't know about you, Lauren, but I don't know if I can answer that because I don't think I was really introduced to the adoptee community. Just to go back on one of the earlier themes mentioned, I think at least definitely for me and I know for other adoptees as well, there is a huge difference between acceptance and celebration of your identity. Um, And I think that I'm like, I don't even know. I'm maybe halfway through acceptance and nowhere near celebration. Um, But then again, if you asked me a month ago or, you know, in March, I would say that I'm not even halfway towards acceptance. So I think that maybe if I, if I did have a stronger adoptee community around here, that would kind of lend itself towards more acceptance of being adopted, being a Chinese-American adoptee. But again, I don't think I had much exposure, if any, to that community. My family stopped going to those annual CCAI reunion picnics when I was pretty young. And then aside from that, we didn't really do anything to, to keep me kind of tethered to that adoptee community and sense of adoptee acceptance. So, so yeah, I, I don't know.
1: I'm not sure if I can answer that as well. So I think the biggest thing were those communal gotcha days with some of the other adoptees from CCAI, but again, that kind of withered away. I don't know if that's just growing up or part of you know life's journey. I don't think it was intentional I appreciate everything that you just said, Anna, too. I like – I think there are pros and cons to not wanting to be categorized, like I mentioned earlier, because, you know, maybe I'm saying just accept me for who I am fully by getting to know me and having conversations, but also perhaps I'm like putting away a part of me that I don't want to talk about because it's hard. And also I think what is challenging is knowing – who you can talk to about that. And I think having a stronger adoption community would be helpful because I think what becomes challenging is if you talk to, you know, people who don't fully understand the adoption process or just people who are your parents and not you going through it. I think people who aren't on the like adoptee side, it can often become more like, teaching or it can get a bit defensive. And, you know, this is really just a time to process it. No one's mad. No one's upset. It's just a place of confusion of like, what does this mean for me? How does this play a role in my identity? And I think, you know, one thing I do think about in parts of my identity is, you know, As a future potential therapist, I think about, will my clients take issue with the fact I'm Asian? Will they take issue with the fact I'm Chinese? Will they take issue with the fact I'm adopted? And honestly, I think about that when it comes to future partners too. I think race can sometimes play a role and, you know, hopefully in a world that is progressing in certain ways, you would hope that that, you know, interracial couples are more accepted. But I do think some traditional families don't respect adoption either which I think can be challenging when there are external forces kind of invalidating your entire experience, which you didn't have control
0: over. I'm curious because you, I believe, are the first adoptees that we've had on the podcast who are not Korean adoptees, which is awesome. And I, I guess maybe you don't have a community that you have really connected with or a Chinese adoptee community in person, but there is such a prevalent, it seems like, adoptee community on social media. And I am curious how you feel navigating those spaces. Like, do you feel like there's a separation between you guys and Korean adoptees? Because like the circumstances in which our adoptions happened were slightly different. Like China has had the one child policy and Korea was a little bit different. Um, or if that's something that you even think about or not. I think I'm relatively
3: new to the world of discovering and connecting with other Asian American adoptees on social media. Um, and I really think that the tragic events in March kind of catalyzed my foray into the world of social media. Like Lauren, I did do an Instagram post just kind of throwing all of my angst and anger out there. It was just a picture of my face and then I spewed all of my emotions in the caption and then shut my phone off for the next day. So uh, <laughs> I... I don't have much experience in terms of connecting with adoptees, uh, whether, you know, Korean, Chinese, American, I I really, I don't know. I'm pretty new to this.
1: Yeah, honestly, same. (laughs) I I don't (laughs) think that there's necessarily a disconnect um, between me being able to connect with like Korean adoptees versus Chinese adoptees. I know that we all have our own individualized experiences. I think it's just been not knowing, you know, not really knowing where to begin, And, you know, it sounds easy, but it is kind of a scary step because if you have been able to, whether you want to say like avoid or refocus on other aspects of who you are in your life for so long and you've made it this far, you know, when is a good time to kind of reintroduce something, quote unquote, new into your life to better understand yourself, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like, there's never really a good time. And I'm definitely really open to it. And I do really want to better understand others stories and get to know them on a deeper level. But yeah, I think it's just like where to begin.
2: Yeah, I can relate to that. I think there's plenty of guests that just feel farther down in progression on their exploration of their heritage. And I feel mostly like you, Lauren and Anna, where my exploration is very adolescent in nature. But it does feel at some times insurmountable because you don't know where to start. And it feels like once you open that door, you just feel like you have to go all in and the floodgates are gonna open and it's like what what's gonna happen then? What am I gonna find out? And it's kinda it's kind of scary and exciting at the same time, but I, I do I can feel the same sense of, you know, me just trying to figure out just how to navigate in this world, period, regardless of my heritage as being a Korean American or a Korean adoptee, much less trying to go down that route where I just feel like, ooh, is it is it too late? But uh, I definitely can feel for everyone who's listening that it's never a bad thing to feel that way or feel like you need to table it. I think it's all where everyone feels comfortable with. And I think that's where we are right now.
3: Yeah, just to go off of that, Benny, um, I... I think this this was months ago, but um, I am big into personal journaling and writing, and um, I do a lot of little notes here and there. I mean, I have, have so many random notebooks filled with all these different musings and whatever is going on in my brain at that time. But there was one day where I just sat down and I just wrote down like five pages worth of just frustrations that I had, little anecdotes that had come up throughout my life about you know, the, the, why are you different from your parents? Why don't you look like we do? Why don't you have blue eyes? All of this frustration and angst and anger just piled up. And I wrote this into a really messy word document and then I edited it and then I, I sent it to my parents and my partner. And that was it. I was like, here, read this, understand what chaos is going on in my brain. Um, And then from there, I was like, I don't even know where to go from here, because that was pretty much like, you know, 24 years of frustration in one document. And I didn't have much else to say at that point. And I think, really, it just kind of comes and goes like that for me, and I'm sure it does for others, too. But, um, Benny, like you were saying, there's just really no top or bottom to this. It's sometimes just this huge jumbled string of yarn. And it's, it's hard to navigate, definitely. So after I wrote that I, I felt so exhausted for like a week, that I just kind of had to had to recover from from pouring that all out. And um, that's basically where I've left off.
0: I can relate to that. Definitely. I feel like in my blogging and and kind of a similar thing, except instead of sending it to to family and my parents, which I probably should have instead of just like publicly putting it on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But just, yeah, kind of the like rage writing and processing at the same time. And then just how, like you said, exhausted you are after that. And then I think, especially if you do it publicly, there's a feeling of you know, oh, well, I put this out there. And are people expecting me to say more? And when are they expecting it? And then you deal with other people's opinions, and it's just it's it adds a whole other layer of things. So I definitely respect and admire the people who choose to do it a little bit more privately. Not that I think I like consciously chose to do it publicly, but <laughs> but I think. Yeah, it's definitely nice to have your own space and to feel like you can go at your own pace and, and not have any external pressure added.
2: Yes, for sure. And I had a really good conversation with my therapist over the last couple of sessions. One of the things that she brought up was just un- trying to understand if there was an end goal to my discovery. And I don't think she was trying to force me into there should be one. But it made me think and, under, and, and really process, you know, who is Benny now? And where do I want this person to be in the future? And how big is this transnational adoptee part going to be in that? I'm just curious to know from both you, do you feel like you have an end goal in mind or this is like, this is what I want to be for the future? Or is that kind of something that you're exploring along the way?
1: Well, I'm a big planner. Uh, one of the, my family will laugh if they listen. Um, one of my speeches I gave to like a few hundred IU prospective students was, it starts off with, I live in a family of planners. So I, I do have a parenting document for my future kids that I started in 2016. So whenever they give me SAS, I'm going to be like, listen, I wrote this document in 2016. They're going to be like, mom, you are so weird. And I'll be like, you know it. But um, so again, like I said before, like I'm born to be a mother, so I'm definitely like have that in mind. I would love to have more than one child um, because I feel like the sibling relationship can be something really beautiful. And I like to have a life partner. um, And, you know, I think for my end goal, I just want to kind of use this time in between, you know, this is my first time living alone Um, out in a new city where I don't know that many people to really reflect on who I am and who I'm aspiring to be and what I am okay with and what I'm not okay with, Um, whether that means my transracial identity or things like that. I really want to do the work on my own, but also would love to have like my partner be supportive in that ways. And I think that also potentially joining these adoptive groups that you guys have mentioned before, like I think at the end of the day, everyone just wants acceptance and to be heard. And I think the reason maybe like Anna said, and probably me too, is like, we're always teetering in that phase of acceptance, because maybe we haven't fully felt it, you know, externally. And as much as we want to have that internal drive, you know, we all know that, you know, social media likes whatever it may be, external validation can definitely amp you up. So um, I think just providing a space where I can feel safe to do that would be my end goal. Both independently and with others. Yeah, I don't know if I have like a crystallized end goal
3: really, but um,
1: one of my big
3: fears, definitely growing up and even now a little bit, is just that I do not want to leave this earth resenting my identity. And I think that is just a constant, constant idea for me is that I, I, I would love for myself and my brain and, you know, my soul and everything to reach this acceptance and maybe even celebration of my identity at some point. Um, but I, when I was younger, I just truly resented myself from the inside out. Um, and, you know, that's so unhealthy for any kid, but I definitely feel like for an Asian American adoptee, it's just the the, the path towards building an identity is just so unclear. Um, And I felt alone for a lot of it, really, Um, just kind of explaining away my familial situation to everyone who was watching, everybody who decided that they were able to ask questions and they were owed answers by me. Um, So it took me a while to grapple with that and to, you know, kind of acknowledge my anger at having grown up where I had to basically defend myself for existing. That was, that was hard. Um, but I think another big goal of mine is that if, and when I have kids, I, I don't want them to feel alone. Like I did that. Like, you know, if I, if I have biological kids, um, which is a goal of mine is just that if they look like me. I don't, I don't want them to, to come home from school and say like, Hey mom, these kids you know, pulled their eyes at me on the playground and called me names and all that and then for them not to have someone to talk to. And I think for a lot of my childhood, I did not have anyone to talk to about that. I think my parents tried in a lot of ways to, to help me through it. But unfortunately, not enough. And they know that I think this they know that I love them very much. And would not change our parenting situation for the world. But it was hard. And it was definitely an uphill battle alone. And especially for an elementary schooler to have to explain adoption, to moms, Jewish, uh, the whole shebang was difficult. So I just, I don't wish that upon my future kids. And I hope that as a mom, I can be there for them.
1: I just want to jump in here, Anna. I like really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing all of that. And I can only, you know, that wasn't my experience where I constantly felt like I needed to defend myself to others. But I think I had a really big challenge growing up, especially in the middle school time. You know, it's always rough um, during that age as you're going through puberty and figuring out who you are and, you know, clicks start to form. But, you know, one fear that I had was that. One, I was going to be abandoned, which has lived with me a long time, which makes a lot of sense as an adoptee. And two, that everything was my fault. Um, You know, when you don't have certainty, it's very often like normal for you to assume the worst. Um, You know, I haven't sought out my birth mother. To me, it's just like a foreign concept. I have no idea like how I would even do that. Um, And I haven't really thought a lot about it in depth, but. You know, I used to think everything was my fault. I would take blame for a lot of things, which, you know, wasn't very healthy throughout a lot of relationships that I've had. But I guess, you know, I can relate to you in the sense of feeling really alone and feeling like things were my fault and fearing abandonment. But my two cents I just wanted to share with everybody listening to is, you know, it took me 24 years to kind of overcome that fear of abandonment. And what I've learned is, You know, I personally never wanted to abandon anyone else in my life ever because I know that feeling. And, you know, I think in terms of taking blame um, and putting too much blame on yourself is sometimes, you know, God moves people and things for you and some people push you away. And that's not necessarily you abandoning them once you know that you've truly done all that you can to be fully authentically yourself and the best friend, partner, child that you can be. And hopefully, you know, for both of us, um, like mothers, I feel like just knowing that that's enough. And I think this whole end goal thing is always a little tricky for me because there are all these quotes about don't live for tomorrow, you know, happiness isn't a destination. Um, Because there's not going to be ever going to be that moment where you're like, aha. I am fully accepted my identity as an adoptee or aha, I am now truly happy. So I think, you know, my goal is like every single day, just making it through and doing the very best that I can, given the tools that I have and the environment that
0: I'm in. Well said.
2: Yeah. So the more I hear your stories, I think there is some crossover between Korean adoptees and Chinese adoptees that are uh, transnational, transracial. For sure. like I, I, I think the duality of what part of you you can relate to, and sometimes that is both or none. The fear of abandonment, the overcompensating, I, I definitely feel too that's a big thing for the, for the career culture. And it's interesting to see the similarities. We appreciate you both coming out and sharing your experiences and being very vulnerable. because I feel it's good to hear other people that are going through the same things, but also doing a great job of keeping it all together, still trying to learn and have good goals in mind.
0: It doesn't need to go on the podcast if you don't have any thoughts on it, but just because I had seen, I think maybe it was Patrick that posted about at the end of May, China announcing their three-child policy, and it seemed like the language really didn't include, well, not that it seemed like, it didn't include any adoptee voices or perspectives, and I was just curious if you had heard that they had announced a three-child policy, if you had any feelings about it. If not, that's totally fine. I just was curious.
3: I honestly, I honestly, I, I did not it. hear about that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think I heard about it very much in passing. So. <laughs> Thank you
1: for educating me.
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, my thoughts on it, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, Shanae, is the one-child policy thing. I think that is what. May- I mean, maybe it does kind of affect how I feel about my whole adoption process, right? Like, you know, to me, from my perspective, it seems as though in China like, families would have babies. And then if it was a girl, or if they had a birth defect, which I had, um, I had an extra thumb, I used to be really anxious and nervous and embarrassed about it. But it's just it's actually really common, but people just get them, like, off (laughs) really young. So no one ever really knows. And people would in China were like, "Ooh, lucky baby. Well, apparently, it was lucky. And I am, I've lived a very blessed life. And I do feel lucky. But, you know, to me, Back to the main point with the one child policy, it felt more personal to be not wanted because of the one child policy. So, like, it felt just super intentional, like a choice. And I'm, you know, I try my very best to empathize with everyone. And I hope to know that, oh, like, there was so much love, but this is just what had to happen. And, you know, my adoptive friend, what she shared with me again, being the light that she is, she said, well, it's really great that our birth moms put us in such public places because they wanted us to be found, which I appreciate. um, Because, you know, sometimes that's not always the case. And that was definitely some good insight. But yeah, the three child policy, I mean, I feel like there will still be struggles with any types of those policies. Mm -hmm. That's all I have to say about that.
2: I appreciate you both sharing. I learned a lot tonight. And like I mentioned before, like on the record, like, I just feel like there's so many similarities and experiences that the Korean and Chinese adoptee groups have experienced. So this season, we are continuing to share adoptee stories. We are also focusing on the important message that our adoptions are not necessarily all what defines us. That being said, Lauren and if you both want to talk about what parts of your identity are most important to you right now, or what are you most proud of outside of your adoption stories?
3: Well, I'll go first. Just, you know, a little vague, but um, I think, <laughs> that, you know, outside of my adoptee identity, I really feel like I have transformed just as a person, just grown so much over the past um, three years, even as recent as that, that, I almost don't recognize myself and there were definitely a few bumps along the way and, um, definitely some, some regrets had some, you know, some, I wish I could have done this. I, you know, I, I wanted to do this instead kind of things. So, and so, yeah, I rude a little bit, but, um, overall, I mean, I am very proud of the person I am today and I Admire that about myself, and it's taken me a long time to get there. But I think, in the general scheme of things, we're on the upward trajectory, which is great to feel.
1: I love that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm been proud of you. I guess, I sound, I'm so mushy. I guess just remaining soft and empathetic in a world that can be really hard and challenging. I think that. Any setbacks I've had in my life, I truly don't ever have any regrets. I do try to take everything that's happened to me or anything that was done by me. Um, I just really try to reflect on what this did for me, how I can become better. Um, And I think one thing that I have done better over these past few years is not beating myself up so much. You know, things happen. And again, you can only do what you can in the circumstances you're in with the tools you have at that moment. And I used to beat myself up saying, oh, there's been no growth. You're responding to a hard situation the same way that you have before. But also that's your automatic processing of like how you deal with things. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you're taking steps backwards. Really, you know, there are small changes that you're making to flourish even more. And my last just like two cents for anyone who's listening. I guess one thing that I've struggled a lot with being an adoptee is being worth it. Um, and because, you know, your parents likely went, you know, through so much to have you in their family. For me personally, I want to do everything I can to kind of repay them, be the best me that I can be. But I just want everyone to know that they are so worth it beyond the things that they can do for others. And that's a hard thing to realize. And I'm still struggling with that often, but I just wanted to put that out there too.
2: Awesome. also well said. Thank you so much. Yeah,
0: thank you. Thank you all for listening. And you can follow Lauren and Anna on Instagram at helloitslore and at Anna A. Ostro. As always, follow us on Instagram at soul Conversations. Check out our website, www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And feel free to send us an email at soulconversationspodcast at com. Have a wonderful week, and we will catch you all on our next episode. Bye, everyone.